Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. If you haven't checked out the new Game B film yet, an initiation to Game B, you can find it at gamebfilm.org. Enjoy! Today's guests are Ashley Colby and Jason Snyder. Ashley is co-founder and instructor at Rhizoma Field School in Colonia, Uruguay. She's an environmental sociologist with a PhD from Washington State University and previously was an itinerant Overland International Traveler, Chicago Tribune Travel Writer, and a long-haul 18-wheel trucker. Yeah, I love those 1950s literary novelist-style bios. They're great. Yeah, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That's the way you actually uh, see the world and understand what's, what's going on out there. Totally. Yeah, this is a return visit by Ashley. She was on EP 122, where we talked about her book and a bunch of other stuff. And her book's called Subsistence Agriculture in the U.S. It's interesting. Jason is an instructor at Appalachian State University in North Carolina, and he's been cultivating ecologically regenerative and resilient food systems in Southern Appalachia, trying to develop a sense of place and how it informs the coevolution of culture and ecology and how traditional place-based wisdom can be integrated with environmentally appropriate technologies and novel forms of social organization to foster human well-being and inclusion. Now, that's a mouthful, but it all sounds like interesting stuff. So welcome, Jason and Ashley. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, this should be fun. You know, I've seen the term that you guys uh, have coined Doomer optimism floating around various corners of the liminal web over the last, uh, I don't know, year or so. And truthfully, I haven't followed it really closely, but what I've seen look like good stuff. So the best I can tell by doing a little bit of detective work, it looks like Ashley is the one that actually coined the expression. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Although I do like to point out that it was literally because of Jason and our conversations that I even thought to say it. It was in reaction to him. So I don't want to take all the credit. So what what do you guys mean when you say doomer optimist? I mean, it's kind of an interesting kind of tension filled phrase, right? Yeah, I love terms that create this kind of inherent tension. Uh, I think they they open up a lot of space for, for insight uh, and synthesis. For me, doomer, the doomer part is just the recognition in a really deep sense that there's you know, a lot of existential risks out there that humanity is at a crossroads. You know, I focus a lot on kind of the ecological climate side, but of course people focus on the singularity and political decay, institutional decay. Of course, the game B uh, analysis of game A dynamics, you know, a couple of technology is resonant there. Uh, so it's trying not to be naive, right? But the optimism part is, well, we don't want to become fatalistic. We don't want to become nihilistic or depressed. Oh, it's just we're all going to die. We have to move forward as if there as if there's hope. And so, trying to find, you know, pragmatic ways to do that. And oftentimes, it it takes the form of thinking about how do you build resilient communities? How do you build regenerative communities? Yeah, and I the, the only thing I would add to that um, to start with is that it seems to us, or it seems to me, that a lot of us were sort of already 
doomer optimists before we knew we <laughs> of the term or before we made the term up. You know, basically, a lot of us were in the the sort of mental space where we recognize that there's a lot of challenges out there. There's a lot of crises. Yet, despite that, we're working on something, working towards something. And then, you know, we sort of found each other on Twitter and started talking about the different things that we were working on and what overlaps and what what's different. And then, you know, sort of coined the term looking back on the already existing things that we were doing. But it's uh, it's not a, descri- a utopian description of what we want to be. It's a it's a sort of backwards description of what already is in our lives, what we're, what a lot of people are already doing and working on. Yeah, I saw a very nice short statement from Jason where you said, uh, Doomer optimism isn't an ideology or an action plan. It's an openly sourced structure of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I took that idea from some of the discourse around metamodernism and structures of feeling and you know how humanity kind of goes through these different structures of feeling or, or stages, although it's not always so linear. And you know, to me, I, I don't want it to be like this ideology. I don't want to see it that way. I don't want it to become a religion or a utopian ideal. You know, we know that those all often lead to bad places. Uh, it's really just a, an orientation towards the world. It's kind of existential, an existential orientation towards the world. Of again, you know, even in a personal in our personal lives, knowing that we're going to die, you know, reckoning with that fact, not trying to like uh, pretend it's not going to happen. As much of modernity kind of distracts us from from that reality, and then, but when, once you do that, once you kind of metabolize that knowledge, or society as we currently know it, you know, might break down uh, in various ways. That kind of clears the space for an appreciation of the moment of vividness in in life and and wanting to move forward in a more grounded pragmatic way at least that's that's how i relate to that as a sensibility ashley yeah i think um for me the only thing i would add to that is it's an orientation at least for me towards toward action and toward experimentation and so i think like when I think about the Doomer part, I'm pretty well steeped in the environmental sociologist, environmentalist world. And I, I have to say that there's quite a bit of Doomerist pathology, like psychological pathology in that world. Like people are, people are sad and anxious, depressed, and like sort of stuck. A lot of people are extremely stuck. And then there's also a pathology around sort of, I don't know, self-flagellation or something. You know, it's like, don't do this. Don't do that if you want to save the environment. If you want to save the world, you must suffer kind of attitude. And I just feel like there are probably more fruitful and psychologically healthy approaches toward toward optimism, towards what it is that we're trying to work towards, What you know, whether it's game B or permaculture or whatever that are practical practical, actionable, and and just sort of, um, yeah, I mean, fun, fun too. You know what I mean? Like there's just, I think in a lot of the doomerism, there's just not a lot of fun at all. There's no real route toward fun or uh, something exciting or something joyful or how to make connections. So I think my orientation is a lot towards like the human side, the the joy, the humanity, and, you know, all the different ways in which people are finding meaning and and. Yeah, I guess like new models for us because we don't have a lot of models for that right now. Yeah, I like that a lot. In fact, you guys said a lot of the right, the right good words about this negative energy, which unfortunately has permeated, you know, some parts of our broader community. 
you know, the word I think of, one you didn't mention, is that I hear all the time is despair, right? Isn't that sad that people would despair, right? We can't predict the future. Maybe the world will end, right? And maybe we'll get struck by a 10-kilometer asteroid. And people say, well, what happens if that happens? Put your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. You ain't a goddamn thing you can do about it. But on the other hand, if you keep your optimism up, you keep swinging, there's a fairly good chance that something will come up. You know, I've never been able to understand what benefit there is in despair. I mean, if nothing else, I'll take some of the other motherfuckers with me when I go, right? You know, totally outnumbered and surrounded, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. Hey, we're going to make them pay, right? Despair, just a useless idea. And that's one of the things I really appreciated as I dug into the work that you guys are doing is that you're upbeat. You say, hey, we don't know, but hey, what's the alternative but to give it a go? Right, right. Exactly. And I would just say what differentiates it from, say, what I would call naive optimism is I think it's also so it's it's pushing back against the despair, but it's also pushing back against the kind of naive optimism of some people who, you know, place all their faith, for example, in technology to save us. Right. Okay, there will be massive geoengineering projects to handle our climate crisis. There will be you know, this or that. We'll go, to, we'll go to Mars to solve overpopulation, the overpopulation problem. Fusion energy, solve all our problems, right? Might happen. It, it might happen. It might happen. And I'm definitely, you know, not anti-technology. I, sh- I certainly wouldn't characterize myself as that. But I like to, this, today I, I, I posted on Twitter, I, I consider myself of the, of the Illich and Schumacher school of techno-optimism, which I feel like is more focused on the human scale and, you know, human kind of center technology, as opposed to just kind of hoping that the singularity will take care of us all and we'll get to, you know, full luxury communism or, or whatever it is, you know, techno luxury communism. I forget what that's called. Yeah, I would add to that. I think um, somebody posted a sort of a series, a, th- a thread of their chicken coop, and it had all these different ways in which they automated their chicken coop they they close they put an automatic door on it that shuts when the when the like light is low enough in the day and an automatic waterer and an automatic warmer for the water and and you know a lot of techno optimists are like you know we just need a fully automated food future and i was like yes on that scale <laughs> like that dude's scale it's like in his house that that appeals to me you know so i think but i think to me what's interesting and and really beautiful about the Doomer Optimist umbrella is the the just wild experimentation that that so many people are doing, and no one's really inviting them to come out of the shadows and like show us show us what you're doing. This is so cool! Like let's all share. And then other people are looking at the thread and saying, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to try that. I never thought to do it like that." And it's just this sort of horizontal sharing of experimentation and knowledge, and and it's sort of like giving people heuristics and examples that are practical and like philosophically robust, you know, to, to, to think about at least, um, if not to act on. Yeah. And this is probably a good time to tell our audience about places they can go and learn more about Doomer Optimism. There's a Doomer Optimist podcast, which is actually fun. You know, people who listen to me know that I don't listen to too many podcasts, but I actually enjoy dipping in and out of the Doomer Optimist podcast. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. I guess you can probably find it on most of the podcast listeners out there. And they also have a, uh, a good uh, Substack, a Doomer Optimist Substack. And as always, we'll have links to those on our resource page at jimrutshow.com. 
So there's there's a lot you can dig into. And what I do like about what I saw, you know, certainly no means all of it, was that kind of mix of philosophy and can do. You know, here's how I actually butchered a bison, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And yeah, and and it's and it's been a nice kind of umbrella term because then it sort of means whatever you want it to mean, you know, pick your doom, pick your optimism is what I always say. And so it's, it's kind of nice. People can sort of just project themselves onto it. I don't know, Jason, maybe you want to describe like how our podcast works. It might be a good opportunity here because it's, it's kind of turned into the sort of collective project. So maybe that would be interesting to talk about. Yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to encourage is, you know, we kind of coined the term and, and and popularized it, of course, actually coined the term, but we kind of started popularizing it, but we really want to see it as a collective. It's not, it doesn't belong to us. We're not the gurus. We're not the leaders. And so both with the podcast and with the Substack, we're encouraging as many people uh, to take ownership of the process as possible. So, you know, if somebody wants to conduct an interview on the platform, granted that we've interviewed them first, that's kind of like usually the rule, although not always, then they can book an interview and host it on our platform. With the Substack, which which Ash- Ashley started, and this was her idea, the mini manifestos. It's like we don't want just our definition. You know, it's not like we're gonna us two are gonna write a manifesto, and that's what Doomer Optimism is. She encouraged many people to write manifestos of what it is, and we got I don't know, we got like fifteen or twenty of them or something. Well, we have ten parts, and each had like two or three. So I mean, close yeah, to so twenty 30. to thirty. Yeah. And so that was more on the philosophical end. And now what we're doing with the Substack is inviting people. We're doing a series called Action Oriented, where we're telling, inviting people to basically write about something practical, something actionable that they did that they can share and other people could perhaps replicate or adapt in their own context. And so, yeah, that's kind of where we're taking it is we're trying to find that balance between kind of the philosophy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very kind of, you know, interested in the philosophical aspects but we also don't want to get too philosophical, too abstract. We don't want to end with talk. It's like, what, what's, what are people actually doing? And oftentimes it revolves around kind of livelihood strategies, revolves around, you know, permacultural type of setups, uh, but it doesn't have to, right? We're also interested in, you know, novel ways people are using technology. You know, we're interested in, uh, I'm interested in the affordances perhaps of Web3, distributed technology, things like that. And so... We're trying to, yeah, we're, we're trying to keep it open and we're trying to empower as many people as possible in the process. Yeah, one of the themes that I think you both hit on also is localism and certainly some of your guests as well is that, you know, particularly if we're thinking about a bundle of trajectories that might go to the doomer side, there's a lot to be said for, you know, localism and the ability to be able to robustly handle fluctuations in the external world by building our relationships and building our capacities locally. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's a huge localist strain in um, Doomer Optimism. I think in general, a lot of what overlaps between people's interests has to do with, I guess, a a sort of like more human scale world. I mean, a a more scale of a world where there's the ability to, to forge deeper connections, deeper meaning, you know, more meaning in work, more meaning in life. And I think I think in general, there's just this sense of malaise and, and depression about the way the options we have available to us. So localism to me is just the sort of kind of catch all term for, for a more human scaled, I don't know, sense of livelihood. I don't know, if Jason, you have a better description than that. 
No, I resonate with that. I would I would just add that I also really resonate with kind of the the modifier cosmopolitan localism or, or networked localism, and that's so it's not kind of our great great grandmother's localism necessarily, although it includes many elements of it. But we're also connected through the internet, right? And I think that's a great you know affordance. That's a great benefit that we should utilize. And so what we're doing now today, all being in different parts of the world, having conversations sharing insights, you know, I think that's a great thing. And so finding that balance, this kind of creative tension between localized lives in physical space, but being connected with, you know, other localities all over the world and, you know, having this kind of collective intelligence at larger scales, I think is also really important to ultimately make 21st century localism viable. Yeah, that's absolutely important. Of course, very much part of our game B thinking, which is we're not going to go back. We're going to go through and onward, right? And yeah. so let's use everything uh, that's been created, but let's use it smartly for human well-being rather than to squeeze the last penny out of the stone, right? Nothing wrong with solar energy. Nothing wrong with the internet. Maybe, maybe in limited doses, nothing wrong with virtual reality, though. I'm a little concerned about where that may take humanity. <laughs> Yeah, and I think in general, Jason and I tend to share a, a like a skepticism toward like a, a tech accelerationism. Um, but I don't think that that necessarily. We talk a lot about making sure that that like just because we have that frame, that doesn't mean we want to preclude people who might have like really big ideas about Web three, for example, from coming under the umbrella and coming to to be a part of the collective. We had Matt Perkowski come write a mini manifesto, and he's he's pretty um, hardcore, you know, tech. I don't want to use the wrong term. What, what would you call? He's it? also a homesteader too, right? Which is, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And and Jordan uh, Jordan Hall came on um, the podcast. That one hasn't come out yet. So I, I'm. I want to be sort of a warm skeptic, you know, I want to be agnostic, but I want to, um, I want to provide a platform. But I, I also think that the skepticism, I think in general, there's a lot of groupthink. There's a lot of like the permaculturalists talk to themselves and the, the Web3 people talk to themselves and nobody's talking across. And I think the skepticism in some ways is accelerating or making, or strengthening everybody's ideas. We should be able to talk across these differences and sort of be skeptical in a way that makes each other's ideas stronger um, or more legible to an outside audience, et cetera, et cetera. So I think part of the idea, too, is to is to kind of um, ward off the groupthink, which is happening so much. And so, you know, people just finding like other people, you know, to, to find a place where we can sort of butt heads politely, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. And certainly, at least in my view, you know, Web3, lots of interesting ideas there, but much to be skeptical about as well. You know, I can, I, a week doesn't go by. Somebody doesn't toss me a business plan for some Web3 thing. And at least nine times out of 10, my answer is, now, why would you need the blockchain to do this? Wouldn't it be 10 times cheaper, 100 times faster and a thousand times more resilient uh, to do it a different way? And then, oh, blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. Right, they go, go talk to somebody else, right? On the other hand, there are some things that only can be done on a trustless public ledger. So, you know, let's get smart and understand what these affordances are from things that are Web3 Web is developing. And let's go do those kinds of things. But keep in mind, there's lots of things that one can do on the net that 
Web3 is just, a, frankly, a, dis- a distraction and a price increaser. So, you know, it requires some discernment about our technologies and not to, as you say, you know, bandwagon along and, and think that blockchain is the magical answer to all the world's problems when it ain't. Just It's just, you know, a, another kind of shovel, basically. So if you need to be the kind of hole that uh, Web3 is good for, then use Web3, but don't treat it as if it were religion. I see a lot, a lot of that, unfortunately, at the moment. Uh, of course, the same was true in Web1. You know, I lived through the very end of my business career was the dot-com boom, right? All kinds of ridiculous crap came out, right? And then it popped, it burst. But then I like to point out to people, you know, the end of the dot-com boom did not mean the end of the internet, quite the contrary. It basically cleaned out the brush, the crap. And that which was, you know, reasonable continued forward and got bigger and faster and stronger, probably too fast. And the same is true about Web3. There will be a Web3 burst and uh, much of the underbrush will be cleared out. And you know, those ideas which actually have merit, actually have utility in the world will move forward and make probably make a big impact. So, you know, I'm with you on understand that it's not entirely bogus, but understand that there is a lot of bogosity uh, running around the concept called Web3. Yeah, I like to call it a healthy skepticism, and, and we definitely try to engage with it. So, for example, soon we're going to be interviewing Gregory Landwa, who's uh, co-founder of Regen Network, and he he's really into regenerative finance. And you know, we're really we really want to get into these issues of you know, I, you know, I I think that there is a, a great possibility for you know our financial system to be geared more towards ecological regeneration and regenerative agriculture. Um, but we also have, a, I would say, a healthy skepticism of the translation between the qualitative and the quantitative, right? And if you're trying to measure certain aspects of ecological health, right, um, do you have to kind of, it, does it have to be reductionistic in order to actually put it on a ledger, for example? And so, you know, we want to explore these issues, right? Not that we want to, you know, we don't want to foreclose them, but we also don't want to jump in there you know, it's kind of like religious believers right off the bat. So healthy skepticism, I think, is our attitude. Yeah, yeah. actually, you can actually pull something out from the old uh, history of business automation. You know, back in the 80s, used to, used to always tell people, do it on paper first. Figure out what you're trying to accomplish before you automate it. And I'd say the same is true on uh, on Web3. Figure out what it is you want to do before you decide even if these Web3 technologies are appropriate. Ashley, go ahead. I cut you off. Sorry. It's okay. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I think like thinking back to my research, not to get too deep, but I, I think we're in this historical moment where there's just all sorts of crisis and all sorts of experimentation. And I think basically in times like that, a lot of people are looking for like one single answer that solves everything. You know, they're like, just give me Web3, that's going to be it, you know, and, and we'll be like <laughs> saved and but we'll be in the promised land, you know, to use religious terms. And I think that for me, uh, the skepticism is to make sure that we don't go all in on one thing, but instead be open to like the experimentation and cross-pollination across different strategies for dealing with crisis or for bringing in, you know, the next world, whatever it's going to be, then all the, the new social institutions. If if fundamentally what we're trying to do is build new social institutions, it has to be through that act of experimentation. The answer isn't all all pre prepackaged for us. It, it can't be. It's it's a it's necessary the process. So for me, the 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 religious sensibility thing is really on my mind a lot. You know, because I see a lot of people doing this kind of cult like 
activity, which is like, oh, we've got one big guru leader and the leader has all the answers and we're going to follow them to the end and and um, I'm going to defend them. You know, the Bitcoiners, extreme Bitcoiners are like this. Um, not all of them, because many of them are, are wonderful and, and think a lot about decentralization, et cetera. So for me, it's um, let's let's stay away from the extremes. Let's try to stay in the middle, in the experimenting zone and and like, you know, cross pollinating ideas. Jason, do you have anything to say about that? I don't have much to add. I, I, I like to think I'm a theory of change pluralist that, you know, we need many different experimentations and reality itself will ultimately select which ones are the most robust, but it needs a lot to select from. Yeah. I usually add one other thing. I, I, I call my approach coherent pluralism. There does need to be a small handful of general principles if humanity is going to make it through the bottleneck here that may well be coming at us. But beyond those small handful of principles, let pluralism bloom, right? I talk about how, you know, game B communities, so-called proto-Bs, you know, just pick one domain, sex, one of our everyone's humanity's favorite topics. I can imagine a proto-Bee that operates like a upper middle class Victorian village, right? Everybody nice and proper, at least on the outside. Who knows what's going on behind <laughs> closed doors? I can imagine another proto-Bee that's a free love sex cult, right? And they could both be proto-Bees, right? And I don't think there's anything that says they couldn't be, so long as they honor a small number of very basic principles about respect for the carrying capacity of the land, how we think about competition versus cooperation, how we think about uh, satisficing versus maximizing, just a few things like that. But in terms of how you live your life day to day, there really ought to be lots of pluralism. And, you know, the same way you're all, you all are skeptical of gurus. I'm also very skeptical of anybody with their, their book that says utopia on the cover, right? It almost never works that way. In fact, we looked at the history of such things. It usually ends up being hell on earth. Totally. Totally. And I, I do think that we're adjacent to a lot of people who are who are like, you know, they could be considered utopian in some of their models. Um, there are a couple of people I know of personally who are literally trying to build European style towns from scratch, like in the United States. Um, and they're trying to start like, like literally build a town, a walkable community. <laughs> and it seems in some ways like a utopian project. But from what I understand of the people doing it, um, one of them is kind of secret about it, the other one's not, they are trying to do it in an iterative way in the way that you know, you, tr you build a couple of things and, and you see how people react and, and on and on. So I do think there's also like a weird, we're in a weird, weird world where it can be like, uh, leaning toward utopianism, but, you know, maybe there people are trying to rein it in and try different big projects um, that could, that, you know, any moment could take a turn towards utopianism with the wrong leadership. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's, you know, something at the scale of building a uh, European town seems perfectly reasonable to me, right? And I, I know of at least two projects. It'd be interesting if they're the same two. Probably are. Uh, uh, one in Texas and one in Nevada. And you know, I think experiments, even at that relatively large scale, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe a billion here and there, those are worthy experiments. And, you know, I, for one, certainly encourage people to give such things a try. And even if they fail, I guarantee you we'll learn something along the way. Yeah, that's really that's really it. I mean, I think, you know, in terms of core principles or values, I mean, I think we all kind of align with systems thinking, iterative uh, experimentation. But you know, not fully relying on stumbling into emergence, but, you know, there, there is some, we've had a conversation where like, what is the minimum viable design? 
right? That that encourages kind of this coherent pluralism, as as you say. And I think that's a really interesting question. And we don't really know. Say you're building a eco village or a European style town. You know, how much do you want to pre-plan ahead of time, and how much do you want to just let let evolve? And I think that's a really interesting question to engage with. And that also that's like a meta iteration, or you you know many different experimentations of how what is the minimum viable design criteria to get both some coherence, but also not not the uniformity. Yep, that, that conversation is going on in the game B world right now as proto bees are starting to form up. I think of one that is going to be quite tight in its definition and others that will be intentionally quite loose in their definitions saying, hey, we don't know, you know, we'll try to think it through, but we're not going to be prescriptive on how this thing's going to evolve, take a more evolutionary kind of gardener's approach, I suppose, rather than, you know, let's survey it all out, lay it all out, this is how it's going to happen. So I know which one I'll bet on is likely to work, but I could be wrong. So it's good for people to try different things. Now, one thing that, you know, listening to your podcasts and looking at your essays and things, one thing I didn't see much of was I call the mesoscale. I think most people are thinking in terms of family homesteads or maybe slightly larger. When I think of the mesoscale, I think of the way humans have lived for thousands of years in communities around the Dunbar number, right? 150 people, villages, essentially. And so my own thinking has continues to be attracted to trying to nurture or bring into being communities around that size. I think they provide something extra to the, you know, the nature of human well-being and raising a children. I hate to steal the horrible cliche, it takes a village to raise a child, but at some level, it's true. Ashley, you know how many hands you would really like to have, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think probably... It's, it's interesting what how this is evolving is kind of mirroring what I think in general um, the, the, the discourse has been evolving um, over time where people are trying to, to figure these things out. So I think I think people's mind at first when you think like, okay, we need to make an entirely new society. It either goes to like the individual and I think like the, I think of the Jordan Peterson clean your room. Like pull yourself up, clean yourself up, get yourself in order, you know, individual first, or they're thinking like totally the globe. And I'm thinking like regen network type stuff. It's like, we need the entire globe to be able to coordinate to like, you know, benefit ecological health. And then I think we're starting, we're just now starting to sort of go up the scale from um, at least most of the doomer optimists that I see. Um, go up the scale from the individual to the family. And people are now starting pretty heavily to talk about what community building means and looks like. You know, I'm thinking about these people who are trying to build um, villages, but I think people are over and over. I mean, I, I'm, I, I focus specifically on people who want to have a homestead. And a lot of the people who want to have a homestead are asking much more about community than the homestead because the homestead doesn't do anything if you... If you're around all other people in the community that are completely isolated and nobody else around you is producing anything and, you know, if everything goes to, to pot, you know, your, your little homestead's not going to be anything. So, you know, I would just say it's kind of nascent. I don't know if you have a different read on the, the situation, Jason. No, I, I agree. I think we started by focusing at kind of the family scale, but I certainly think that you know, we need to think in terms of nested scales. So, you know, uh, individual, family, 
village, say watershed or bioregion and planetary, and figuring out how to navigate the proper balance across those scales, you know, recognizing that like the family and community scale are going to be the most dense in terms of connections. And that's where the localism comes in. But, you know, ultimately, if we're thinking about ecological regeneration, we need to think about kind of larger scale coherence, let's say a bioregional scale or a watershed, right? If you have uh, incoherent kind of ownership and political and economic structures, you know, up and down a watershed, then it's it's not going to turn out well. You know, you can be doing all the best things. And if your water is polluted, say, for example, then, you know, it'll lead to conflict or something else. Um, it won't lead to good places. And so I, I, I think... You know, but by the same time, I, th I think that for a lot of people, you know, the first step is to reclaim your life, <laughs> kind of the clean your room attitude of like, it, it does start with yourself and taking responsibility for you, your life, your family, and your neighbors, getting to know your neighbors. And that, that really has to be the foundation. And then I think once you have that foundation, you know, there's a lot of opportunity, again, for, you know, networking across in a kind of broad scale fashion to achieve larger scale coherence. And so we are getting into that. Like we're, you know, we'll probably be interviewing like Joe Brewer pretty soon. And, you know, he's he's all about kind of the bioregional scale. And, and you know, of course, Regen Network, you know, is, is more of a planetary scale. And so, yeah, we're kind of inching our way in that direction, I would say, Jim, the mesoscale, as you said. But, you know, I would just add one thing, Jason, which is I think that I'll, there's an, there is a, a sort of resistance or a hesitance to jump to the village or community scale before going through the individual to family scale and like kind of sort of figuring those skills out first. Because I think in general, the the tendency is to want to jump right to community. And like I, I told you in um, our, when we when we uh, talked about my book, Jim, you know, this idea where we're just we're going to build community by sitting in a room talking about building community is not how you build community. <laughs> you build it by like working together on projects. So I think figuring out for yourself, like as an individual, what is it? What 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 it, what's driving you forward? What what is your passion for? For me, you know, for example, it's education. So okay, I, I want to get into education. My whole family's involved in that. Now I have a project to bring to people, and then we can work together on that project of education, and we build community out of that project. But if you start just by thinking like I want to build community, uh, let's figure out something to build community community about. It's like it's very awkward and it doesn't t tend to work out. So I think. That is intentional, the idea of like working on the individual to family and figuring out what it is that your your goals are. What are you adding? You know, what, what are you working toward? I'm going to push back here a little bit. And I'm going to suggest that while there are some people that can do it at the homestead level, that is a rare set of personal characteristics that can actually pull that off. And that for 90, I'm going to throw the pull number out of my ass here. So uh, making no claim that this is any scientific basis at all, but 98, 97.5% of people would be way better off trying to make the transition into a community that includes a fair bit of division of labor, right? The amount of work necessary to actually run a family farm, to get there from being a goofy ass person living in suburbia with soft hands, right? Uh, who's never even operated a chainsaw. Give me a break, people, right? That's a way too big a leap uh, for most people. Few maniacs can do it. Probably the three of us are examples of three such maniacs, right? But it's not the way to bet. And so my own personal bet 
is that doing it at the village scale where there is a division of labor and no, you don't have to be a jack of all trades to survive, but rather you can uh, you can contribute in one area and you can learn in one area, come up the curve. You can learn all about how to milk goats, right? And in the community where we have a nice herd of goats, uh, you are a very valuable and productive citizen. If you can be sweet to the goats, you know, not scare them, make them love you and milk them twice a day, right? That is a, a true contribution to the community and something that particularly a soft-handed suburbanite would be good at, right? Goats like soft hands. And so there's, there's, there's more affordances for plugging in people into the village context. Further from the human well-being perspective, the mesoscale was, again, where we spent five, 10,000 years, depending on where in the world, you know, at least in the West that we've been at. And the mesoscale in some parts of the world was almost exclusively extended family, right? The Middle East is famous for this. You go to a village of a couple hundred people in the Middle East, they're all cousins, right? Yeah. In Western Europe, not so much, uh, but they were all very similar scales. And so either it was your extended family or it was your face-to-face -face community. And that's really how we lived up till about 1900. And then in 1900, two powerful forces started accelerating to replace that organic meso layer. One was the market, right? You know, in the U.S., probably more like 1880, something like that. And uh, where the market more and more and more, you no longer bought your horseshoes from the blacksmith in your village, but rather you got them from the Sears catalog and you got a whole box of them, right? And yes, horseshoes became a lot cheaper, but you the whole organic relationship with uh, Ashley the farrier went away, right? It was making the horseshoes, et cetera, or the blacksmith. We still have the farrier who puts them on, but we didn't have, we don't no longer have the blacksmith really that makes them. Then the other one that took, took away the meso community was the government. So we essentially have family and face-to-face -face community, which are very human, very organic, very and annoying too. I mean, we all have families. We know our families can be annoying, but they're real. They're human. And we replaced them with cold and sterile mechanisms, government and the market. And I'm fairly convinced that people are crying out, even though they don't know it, most of them, for that meso level sense of well-being where they are embedded in a community of that intermediate size. Yeah. And so for both reasons, I'm putting my bets down on community first, knowing that it's harder, it's a bigger jump. But I think that it, one, allows far more people to plug in, and two, it solves a whole lot more about human well-being. Yeah, I generally agree with you, Jim. I, I think part of what we're doing is we see you know, we're, we're kind of trying to counterbalance that what we see is the overscaling, the atomization. And, and trying to encourage people to say, hey, like we need to learn some skills again that, you know, skills with our hands of, of growing things. Um, I'm one of those soft-handed suburbanites academics who just recently started homesteading. I still don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm learning. Um, and my strategy is, you know, I, I'm not going to a ready-made, say, village that has a game B values, but I'm just, I planted myself in a rural community and I'm trying to get to know my neighbors and and I feel like the more skills that I have, the more useful I can be to my neighbors to develop patterns of functional independence. You know, that, you know, the long-term plan for myself and my children is to, you know, have these mesoscale communities, right? Um, and I think both models can work. You can start with, okay, let's just plop a community down and figure it out. Or, you know, people where they are can, can have this paradigm shift 
start learning things, not everything, right? Learn a few useful skills that are you know helpful for your neighbors and build it organically, right? And connect with people who are already living in these places, right? You know, respecting you know local customs and traditions to some degree uh, or as much as you can. Yeah, I don't know, Ashley. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just, I, I think we, I think you and I agree, Jim. I, everything you were saying makes sense. The, I think the only real difference for me is that I tend toward um, what Jason's describing, this sort of organic building in place where um, individuals build some skill set. Like they don't have to have a homestead where they like figure everything out. But let's just say, for example, um, like a lot of the people I interviewed in Chicago, they, they started keeping chickens. Then they got to connect with these other chicken people. And then sometimes the chicken people met the, the bee people. And now they're, now they're uh, exchanging honey and eggs. And it becomes this sort of organic bottom up, like parallel village in place. And I think this way to get from point A to point B, game, <laughs> game A to game B, um, would, would be, it's less of a big leap then I'm going to take my family out and I'm going to move to an eco village in Ithaca, New York. There is an eco village in Ithaca, New York. That's awesome. I've been to it. It works. It's exactly what you described, Jim. It's, you know, people own their individual homes, which is nice. And then people, you know, that's like the, the legal framework that makes sense for a modern American. But, you know, they have a, a shared community farm and they have shared tools and they have shared bicycles and all of this stuff and they they have ways in which they they work together you know but not everybody um is going to take a leap of faith to move to an eco village like that and not everybody should would be able to so i think for me that's fine and that's a, a great path if, if that's available to you if it's not one thing you can do is build your capacities and start connecting with other people who are building their own capacities they don't have to be the same as yours and then just see what blossoms and you have like a sort of secret. And I, the thing I like about the Doomer Optimism feels like this kind of secret society, secret parallel society where we're all like experimenting in our backyards and sharing it on Twitter and, um, you know, getting new information from one another. And I don't know, it just feels like this is some secret that other people don't really know about. We're, we're really enjoying ourselves. Yeah, we're, I see it now. And yeah, it actually fits into my nomenclature of pre-bee. You know, what should you do before you're ready to join a proto-bee, right? And I lay out a long list of these things in my essay, Journey to Game B, and I talk about all those things. You know, develop some actual skills. Harden your you know, body and your mind. Harden your finances, right? You don't want the bill collector to be chasing you into proto-bee land. So, you know, you know, get your finances cleaned up. A whole number of, of steps of that sort. And I, I could see now now how your approach is, you know, very congruent with that, with that phase, right? It's not the destination necessarily, though it may be the destination for a lot of people as far as they'll get, uh, but they'll be better off for having done it. And, you know, as they accumulate skills, they'll develop capacity and they'll develop mental toughness and perhaps some financial resources, or at least not the anchor around their neck of the debt anchor. So when the time comes, they can make a move. And I would just add that almost always when you're building these capacities, if they're skills you learn from other people, you build community too. And people underestimate this so much. And I think like, you know, just getting out of your house and learning, going and taking a chicken keeping class or something. I took this class in Chicago, urban agriculture class in in like February and March. And it was just like, I met all these people and it's a sort of like secret society. And it was, you know, I'm both learning skills and meeting people. And then, you know, after the class ends, I'm calling people up like, 
okay, how did you actually do this in practice? <laughs> what we learned in class, you know, I think people really underestimate the 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 organic <laughs> normal ways that humans build community um, or have in the past. Yeah, one way one way I would think about it is that you know I would like to think at least that the Doomer optimists are kind of helping to prepare the ground for ultimately village scale type of communities, you know, proto bees, game bees type type communities to arise and flourish, you know, both kind of intentionally with more design and and just to kind of naturally arise. Um, you know, that that's one way that we could see our, our two projects as compatible or synergistic. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'm glad we had this conversation. I now see it. It makes perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. You can see how they overlap. And, and, you know, they may not, right? Something may spin out of doom or optimism that, that you didn't foresee, right? That takes a different road. And something may spin out of game B that takes a different road to the earlier stages. But I can see how the two plug together pretty nicely, actually, you know, at least at the first order. And that's good. Uh, let's now, though, turn a little bit to the slightly darker side. When I was doing a little research for the show today, I discovered that you guys got a pretty high-profile convert, Tucker Max, right? <laughs> I uh, read Tucker Max's book, Hope They Serve uh, Beer in Hell, when it first came out. And, oh, my God, right? That's actually a true story from his life, not a satire, as some yeah. people think, right? And he was a choice asshole in his youth, to say the very least, right? And he's the first to admit it. So it's kind of interesting that he has taken to uh, Doomer optimism, though I would say his writings on it, eh, a little bit more on the Doomer side than the optimist. I think you guys had, I didn't look at it, but I think you guys had him on one of your podcasts. Yep. What did he have to say? Yeah, he um, he's an interesting one. And, and one of the one of the two situations where we sort of got a, a, a large profile, the other one we got a mention from this this journalist, Eris Rusinos, in the, the publication Unheard um, on Doomer Optimism. And, and, and that was exciting because that, you know, turns into, it's like becoming a real thing. But Tucker turns out sort of had a change of heart. This, you know, this is me putting, I don't want to talk tell his story from his perspective or my perspective or anything, but basically he went through a long period of psychedelic therapy um, and it sort of changed his whole perspective on life. Um, and then he, he basically had a, a big break during COVID where he was just like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing with life? I'm not spending enough time with my family. I've always wanted to get onto some land. Um, I've always wanted to be closer to nature. I wanted my kids to be closer to nature. So, you know, the pandemic gave him an excuse to buy a ranch. And basically, he just has this this sense that there's um, lots of crises on the horizon, similar to us. Um, and that, you know, the, the best way to prepare for that is to just start producing some of your own food and building out a community, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I think it's pretty much well aligned. The the only real way in which I diverge is that I I don't put a huge emphasis on like Second Amendment stuff and defense. Although having interacted with him, I'm starting to just think about it more seriously. I'm you know I'm just like this normal squeamish like you know person who's never had to think about Second Amendment stuff. So I I don't and so but maybe I should and so that in some ways I I. I'm, I'm trying to allow the diversity that's falling under this umbrella to push my thinking a little bit or open my mind a little bit to things that I might not have been open to before. I don't know if, Jason, you have more to add on the, the Tucker Max question. Yeah. Well, I would just say that there's a lot of ideological diversity within Doomer Optimism, right? There's more 
right wing folks. Uh, there's more left wing folks. They they often don't get along. There's there's various conflicts. You know, people have different versions of doom. Right, Tucker's is very much kind of the political political system version of doom. And you know, there's definitely I I definitely don't see the world quite like he does. Right, I have my own kind of sensibility. But you know, I, I, again, it's an open source structure of feeling, and he's resonated with it. Uh, but I, I don't want people to think that you know the Tucker Max version of Doomer Optimism is Doomer Optimism, just like my version or Ashley's version isn't Doomer Optimism. You know, there can be many, many different ways people engage with it. But you know, like you said, it's it's a meme. It's open. We're not trying to defend it, and so people, you know, might uh, use it in certain ways that that I don't ultimately agree with. And I'm, I'm prepared, you know, I'm prepared for that. I'm wondering, Jim, like if you have a, a thought, I don't not, not to turn the interview around on you, but Jason and I sometimes talk about, you know, it is just a movement. It's, it's this idea, you know, describing people who already exist. If it goes in some direction, that's not the direction we would take. What do you do? I mean, just let it go. Right. I mean, more people involved yeah. on, in the umbrella of, of, you know, thinking about a different alternative type future good, you know, just let it go. But I'm wondering what your approach has been to that with Game B. Oh, yeah, we certainly have it because we certainly have right wingers and left wingers and orthogonalists and anarcho capitalists and uh, you know, every sort you can imagine. And it's actually a lot of work to keep the big tent from turning into a knife fight, right? <laughs> but one of the things we have done is prune the far edges, right? We were infiltrated by some actual fucking Nazis, right? Really? And once we discovered it, we booted them all. And there was also an attempted hostile takeover by some extreme Wokies, and we booted them also, right? By amazing synchronicity, it was exactly at the same time, and neither side knew about the other. So it was actually a wonderful signal to boot you know, literal Marxist invaders and the Nazi invaders simultaneously. So we could be the Americans and the Brits and get rid of the Nazis and the and the commies uh, all in one fell swoop. And that kind of felt good. But it is, uh, it's a constant juggling match. And one of the ways I've done it in uh, Game B, or we have done it in Game B, a group of people do this, is we have a flat ban on talking about contemporary political issues within the Game B context. Of course, I flame off about contemporary political issues all the time in my outside of Game B persona, but within the Game B venues, I just have a flat rule. Unless you can tie it specifically to Game B in a specific way, you know, no arguing about abortion, no arguing about gun control, no arguing about COVID or anything else. And that is, once we put that rule in place, that made a huge difference because, you know, we're not here to solve Game A's political problems, right? We're here to look beyond that, both at smaller issues. How do we get along in a village of 50 people initially, 25 people? How do we get along in coherence in a group of five people? Still not a fully solved problem. And, you know, how do we uh, plant a seed that will eventually grow to be all of humanity? But in terms of arguing about the things that are argued about on the cable TV shows, none of that allowed. There's enough of that in the world, right? Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And I don't know, it's it's funny now that you're, um, I'm asking for your advice. It feels like doomer optimism is the is the like you know the the child of Game B looking up for advice for from you guys. <laughs> I think there's uh, something to that. You you guys have been doing it for quite a bit, so it's it would be nice to to have that kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I actually think of it more as this wider community that uh, recently got this uh, buzzwordy name the liminal web, right? I don't think you were in Joe Lightfoot's document, but you should have been, because it's clear that you're part of the family, 
right? In the same way, metamodernism is part of the family. You know, I argue with the metamodernists some, but I also acknowledge uh, considerable debt to metamodernism and, and other Game B do people too. In fact, there's even on the Game B Home website, there is a subgroup called Game B and Metamodernism, where people who adhere to both strongly, you know, try to work on what does that mean. So, you know, I think that we should think of, you know, most of these tendencies as being part of a broader search in parallel through design space. And we can learn from you, you can learn from us, and we should make sure we keep protocols open to, you know, always be available to each other to help where where we can be. Yeah, I feel like so I I feel like I kind of came out of the meta modern liminal web space with both and with with Jared. But I I think one of the skill sets that I picked up that is really helpful is this idea of mimetic mediation and, you know, keeping communication open among these mimetic tribes. And it can be it can get nasty. We don't have like an explicit ban against politics. And people often do fight about politics, like on Twitter and stuff. They the more left wing or the more right wing or the more Luddite or the more kind of, you know, technophile folks kind of clash. And I, I personally just try to look for, you know, threads of commonality and try to set an example. I don't always succeed. You know, sometimes I get drawn into fights and stuff, but, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't feel the need to police it. Um, it might be less coherent in that way than game B, but, you know, I think just trying to set a good example, you know, is, is, Kind of my goal. Yep. And the only thing I would add, bringing it back to the Tucker Max question, is I think that a lot, I think this is, I mean, I think this has the potential to go pretty mainstream. I think once Tucker started writing about um, Doomer Optimism, he said that he got a huge response from his readership, which is, which is huge. And I think that generally people, and I argue this in my book, feel this sense of malaise and alienation, and et cetera, et cetera. And they're looking for some, some sort of model or heuristic to, to give them an idea of what's possible. And I think that's basically it. That's basically what we're trying to do. And I think Tucker did that for his readership. And, and I think his message could be extremely popular. You know, it's, it's, so in line with the American rugged individual, like, you know, I'm going to get out onto a ranch and clear some brush and provide for my family. And, you know, but, you know, having spoken with him privately, he he really does value community a lot. And he has these relationships with a few different families, and they're almost like a mini intentional community, which is probably unexpected. So, you know, I think, I, I do think that as this becomes more mainstream, I get sort of freaked out because of that mimetic mediation tool. Like, what, you know, who, who am I? I don't know um, what I'm doing. So I'm just trying to use my intuition to, to sort of foster, I think, like the anti-cult is what Jason and I uh, keep saying, and uh, um, and to try to avoid dehumanizing language. And Jason and I have been talking about this a lot recently because it's really easy to get frustrated and to start name calling the opposition, especially if they're making fun of you. And so, you know, we're we're, Jason and I um, are trying really hard to 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 model not dehumanizing language, anti-cult, like you know, just. these general principles, like you were saying, Jim, before. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, we we were aware from the very beginning of Game B back in 2013 that the the cultish bad attractor is out there, and we all have to if we were, if we're going to be operating in good faith, 
we all have to be realizing all the time that that cultic bad attractor is out there and, and work purposefully to diffuse it, make fun of it, and if necessary, you know, act decisively against it when it turns up. I think that's, you know, again, part of this liminal web phenomena and other adjacencies, right, is, uh, you know, doing this work. Uh, without collapsing into cultism and us versus themism, other than at the limits, I'm happy to say I'm gonna I'll shoot commies and Nazis. <laughs> but other than that, everybody else is welcome, pretty much. And you know, you know, I make no bones about it. I'm a Second Amendment kind of guy myself, right? And I'm on the record as saying I expect every proto bee to have a militia, right? Not that it's the militia lifestyle, bunch of fat boys from Michigan running around with their bottoms of their bellies hanging out of their uh, a little bit too short uh, cami t-shirts. But, you know, if the, if the shit does hit the fan, these communities do need to be able to defend themselves. And so, and even a relatively small amount of thinking and training, and most importantly, as every defense person who does training will tell you, the skills, relatively easy to teach. The mindset, that's what you got to got to get people into is the, yeah, let's turn, let's turn these squishy sociologists into people that if shit hits the fan. They're, you know, they're prepared to do what they got to do. God damn it. Yeah. And that's, oh, sorry, little ears there. Maybe the little ears don't want to hear that kind of language, but that's all right. Too late now. No, I would just add one other thing. I remember Jason um, a while back when we were talking about a big tent, um, use this metaphor, um, sort of like a bunch of small adjacent tents. Like not everybody has to be in the same exact tent. Like, you know, there's a lot of um, coordination and agreeableness required to be in the same tent, but we can be in nearby tents and we can have people going in between tents. Um, And this is how Jason and I think of ourselves. You know, I, I'll go hang out with the anarcho-capitalist tent and then bring some insights over to the, you know, I guess socialist leaning or the permaculture tent or whatever and see if I can cross-pollinate between the tents. But um, they don't have to all be together in the same tent. They, and they, they will never be. And we should just never even expect that or, or want that. I like that. That's an interesting, interesting and slightly different perspective on, on how to manage this thing. One last thing before we wrap up, one thing I did pull out of Tucker's essays was, I think, one of the just truest statements about the right mindset, because he disabuses people of the notion that the classic prepper with a bunker and a bunch of guns is going to have any chance at all, right? That's not the way anyone's going to deal with any kind of scenario. You know, if the world breaks, this is Tucker's words, if the world breaks down, it won't matter how much food or water you have unless you can defend it. The best way to do that is to surround yourself with a community of people you can count on no matter what. And I think that is actually the correct way to think about dealing with some of these downside scenarios, which are by no means guaranteed to happen, people out there. One of the things we know from our complexity science is you know, it's really hard to make predictions, particularly about the future, right? <laughs> and so there's some bad scenarios, there's some good scenarios, there's some neutral scenarios. But being embedded in a community of people that you can trust if the shit hits the fan is really the, the correct way to be prepared for the biggest possible collection of trajectories. You're not going to defend against them all. Some of them, it'll be overkill. Some of them would be fine living in suburbia, right? Just having uh, 30 days worth of food in your freezer. But for some of those intermediate bad scenarios, being in a community of people you can trust and have skills uh, strikes me as uh, the way to be. You know, one of the reasons I live where I live 
you know, we're very remote, which is good, but more important, we live in a place with lots of people who still have the mindset and the skills to, you know, survive if they have to, frankly, without even breaking much of a sweat, because uh, they're not that far generationally from, you know, working the land with horses and heck, the uh, our homestead didn't get electricity or a phone until 1962. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really like Tucker's statement, there's no safe places, only safe people. And I think that kind of really summarizes what you're getting at. I mean, same here, Jim. I mean, I'm, I really love where I am in, you know, in Appalachia, Northwest North Carolina, where, you know, this is the place where, say, the Fox Fire series was written, right? And so there's still that kind of cultural memory, even though it's not always on the surface, there's still that cultural memory. And I'm in a place where, like, I'm like 10 miles from, you know, university town where I work, but you know, we're still kind of out in the country. And I really like that mix of, of, you know, being around people who still have these skills, and I, I think are safe people, but at the same time, not being so isolated and remote, I, I don't think that will get you very far in, in worst case scenarios. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is I think in general, with our, our obsession about progress, we have discarded people and full full communities of people who have these skills, have a lot of necessary skills. And so part of my not-so-secret project is to recenter those people with those skills as the experts that they are before they're, they're gone, <laughs> before their knowledge is lost. And so um, I've been working on a couple of different projects where, where I'm really trying to center um, people who have been cultivating skills like homesteading skills, but not just that, you know, alternative education skills of cooperatives, people who are building, um, you know, just sort of different institutions and have been doing it for a while and have made all the mistakes. That is absolutely essential. And then I think also, you know, like people who have skills that are specific to a certain bioregion, for example. I mean, I think so many people who have skills in Appalachia, for example, are sitting on their old farms, you know, passing away one by one, and no one's going to them saying, you know, what, what do you know? I, you know, the, what everything you know is so essential for our survival. So I think to me, that's part of my, my own personal project with the, with Doomer Optimism is to try to try to advance that knowledge before it's gone. Wow, that's great. Well, I think we went a little over our hour here, but this was a wonderful conversation. I'm really glad we did this because it gave me a chance to learn more about what y'all are up to and dig in at least superficially into the Doomer Optimists materials. And I like what I saw. Nice. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah. And I just want to say, you know, I've, I've um, known about Game B for a while and, you know, I've been highly influenced by Game B, I've listened to your podcast ever since about the beginning. And so, you know, just so you know that, you know, your your influence is definitely, and the whole Game B influence is definitely part of our DNA. So I just want to thank you for that, um, doing what you do. Well, thank you for that. And thank you guys for what you're doing, because you all are taking it in another direction at a different scale. And now, now can actually see how all the pieces go together. And, you know, let's all go forth and do good work. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.